Welcome to the podcast of New City Church. We hope this podcast inspires you on your journey of inward and outward transformation. Please join us on Sundays. You can find more information on our website, grownewcity.church. God bless you. So uh, those of you who were with us last week know that we have just kicked off into a fresh, new sermon series called Survival Kit. Uh, We are just trying to make it through 2020 in one piece. So we are going to be talking about the things that you need to make sure that whether it be, I don't know, the pandemic, one of the most consequential elections of all time, the winter, whatever is set up to test your soul, you will have what you need to be able to make it through 2020 in one piece and maybe even thriving in community. And uh, I came across a text and I was like, I think this is it. I think that this is the text that the most Christians throughout history don't like. I think I found it. Because whether it's that one anarchist Christian I was on a panel with uh, earlier this month, or (laughs) the uh, Christians throughout history, uh, Martin Luther, Origen, Thomas Aquinas, Everyone seems to take major issue with this text. And I thought, um, gosh, as you all are perhaps preparing yourself spiritually, you might be reading a little bit more scripture. And if you come across this text, you might want to know how some people choose to approach it. So let's hear what that is right now. Every person should give themselves under the authority of the government. There isn't any authority unless it comes from God, and the authorities that are there have been put in place by God. So anyone who opposes the authority is standing against what God has established. People who take this kind of stand will get punished. The authorities don't frighten people who are doing the right thing. Rather, they frighten people doing wrong. Would you rather not be afraid of authority? Do what's right, and you will receive its approval. It is God's servant given for your benefit. But if you do what's wrong, be afraid because it doesn't have weapons to enforce the law for nothing. Yikes. Wow. And you know, it's not only me. Like I mentioned, Christians throughout history have always wondered what this text could mean. It's funny because if you do a search for sermons on this topic, you can easily find biblical scholars or pastors deconstructing this um, and really like opposing this text. And you can kind of tell where they are politically depending on the year of which this video was posted. So for example, uh, conservatives really liked to deconstruct this text when Obama was in the White House because they didn't want to have to obey Obama. And uh, as I bet you are in your seat, if you're watching New City Church and you've stuck around this long for this many queer people of color on camera, that you probably are upset about that uh, for different reasons. So, uh, so there is a lot of folks who are like contemporarily, historically, right, left, evangelical, mainline Catholic who are like, yeah, I don't know. When you encounter a difficult scripture, what do you do? Uh, after you kind of like take some deep breaths, is to try to dig deeper to understand the context, to understand 
how was it that this line, this paragraph of text that is so asinine to me, what made it into the survival kit of our ancestors? What was Paul trying to get at with this writing that it was so essential that he included it in this letter? And that part of the letter was so essential that it was canonized into the Bible. What does this add to our survival kit? And so when you do a little bit of the uh, research into the text, you realize that Paul is writing this towards the end of his career. And um, just a couple of years earlier, Emperor Claudius, Claudius, I kind of pick, I, Claudius is kind of how I picture it. So uh, Claudius just had it up to here with the Jews and so uh, uh, exiled Jews from Rome, probably shouldn't be making light of his name and then talking about anti-Semitism so close together, but uh, he exiled the Jews from Rome. And, uh, and so obviously that was like a big dramatic thing. And, and this is talked about in the book of Acts actually about this happening. Um, and then uh, a couple years later, the Emperor Nero welcomed the Jews back. And of course, as is the case with any time that there's diaspora, when there's folks who are like sent out of a place and then they come back to that place, each of those people, depending on where they went, changed. And so there was a, a lot of conflict there. And then there were uh, folks who were converting to Christianity and there were Jews who were converting to Christianity, like Paul was a Jew who converted to Christianity. And then there were Gentiles, meaning like non-Jewish people who converted to Christianity. And as you can imagine, there was a little bit of conflict there, like whether you can eat pork, whether circumcision is a thing, like whether, we, how Jewish do the Gentiles need to be? How open-minded to Gentile ways do Jews need to be in order to be Christian? And so there was a ton of conflict and a ton of um, uh, people who have been divided and conquered or otherwise separated. And they're all infighting each other. And there was even rumors of uh, insurrection, uh, possible wars for Jewish sovereignty and that kind of thing. And then there's Paul trying to write ahead to the, the Christians in Rome. He hadn't uh, planted this church in Rome, but he was writing to the church in Rome so that they could be his collaborators on continuing to spread uh, Christianity through all the way to Spain. And so uh, Paul is trying to get uh, this infighting diaspora, very cacophonous group of people to create social change in the name of the gospel. And uh, I imagine that Paul knew that in order for social change to happen, we need to get in formation. We need to get organized. We need to learn how to uh, preserve each of our individual unique identities while still moving collaboratively so that we don't die from friendly fire before we can take on real social change. And of course, at the time, there were people who wanted to oppose Rome. There was always people who wanted to oppose the Roman Empire. And uh, there were those folks were like, I want to get uh, right out there right now. And I want to just like die as a martyr to the cause. And if Paul is like any community organizer I know, Paul was saying, yeah, that's great. So you can die as a martyr to the cause 
And then how will society be better? Because I think Jesus cares about the transformation of society and not just about us feeling like we're right. I think Jesus actually wants Christians to be rendering a type of social change in whatever area that they find themselves in and not just kind of like martyring themselves for the cause because they believe in something, but their death is not furthering the movement. You know what I mean? Does that distinction make sense? Of course, sometimes there are people who like literally martyred to the cause, Paul being one of them, and then it does for the, the movement because the people were organized and the people knew how to, how to uh, grieve together and to not waste someone's death together. But if someone's just gonna like stray from the crowd and then just decide over there in that corner to get murdered by the empire, they're going to be forgotten in history and that won't actually change something. And I believe that Paul was convinced that Jesus came here to set about to create the kingdom of God here on earth. And anyone who signs up to be a Christian has to be trying to embody, this is a big theme in, in Romans, but also throughout uh, Paul's writing, to, to become like Jesus in our own bodies and in our collective bodies, not just so that we can like be in a circle and like laugh haughtily about how right we are and how we have all the best opinions, but to actually change stuff, to actually liberate the oppressed, to actually feed the hungry, to actually let the marginalized take center stage. Jesus came being like, hey, this is not like a stage exercise. We're not just warming up here, folks. We are actually trying to transform the world and in order for that to happen, we are going to have to get organized. And so, I guess if that is the case, and if my research uh, is telling the truth about that being the situation that Paul can walk into, I can see how that letter would be like, I need to tell everyone to keep their cool long enough to stay, to get organized. And if I put any conditions on it, then the people who are like ready to martyr themselves for the cause are going to find that loophole and then go do and like get arrested or die. And it won't mean anything and nothing will change from it. Like Paul was like, maybe I just need to have this be a broad rule just to keep these folks from creating a situation that they are not quite ready for. And in the future, I absolutely believe that Paul would be telling people to not obey the government. And in fact, we see glimpses of this throughout his writing, including in Romans, where just a chapter earlier, he said, do not conform to the ways of the world. It's like, okay, so don't conform to the ways of the world, but obey the government. How do these things get done? And I think that the way that historically Christians have uh, made sense of this, including Martin Luther King Jr., was that it's the Christian obligation to support the government when they, uh, the government, does things that furthers good in the world 
And it is the Christian obligation to not support the government when the government is not furthering the kingdom of God. This is a pretty big deal for Christians, actually, especially nowadays, because um, we are in a media situation, kind of like cluster mine, <laughs> cluster mine, where um, it's our job to be mad at someone permanently, especially elected officials, especially rulers that we don't like, right? Like, think of the politician that you least like right now. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine that politician doing one thing good to further the kingdom of God. Like, obviously, they might be, like, not a good person overall, but they do one thing right in government to further the kingdom of God. Maybe what Paul is saying is, hey, the Christian approach is anything that furthers the kingdom of God is given authority by God. And anything that opposes the kingdom of God is given authority, is, is God is giving authority to Christians to rebuke that and to stand against that. So the first way that I could potentially find grace in this text is to believe that, uh, one, there is a certain Christian rejection of social justice purity culture, <laughs> of kind of this idea that like if we're just perfectionistic enough about our pursuit of justice and we sever off and banish people who make mistakes, then we will achieve our goals. I don't know if I buy that. Um, of course, there are, there are moments when we need to draw boundaries, but I think that God has put up a lot more with us than we give God credit for, and God's still inviting us around. So I, I do think that there, there is a, a potential avenue for grace there. And I would also add, just as a footnote on that, that like Paul was writing this as a letter to Romans, not as a submission entry for the Bible competition. Like, it's not like people were like, hey, we're gathering a Bible. If you want to be in the Bible, then just submit your writings to the Bible, right? Like, there was no, like, RFP for this. Paul just wrote that as a letter to particular people in particular circumstances while being grounded in certain truths that apply across millennia and across culture. But nonetheless, he was gearing it towards a very specific audience and then people found this letter and then like hundreds of years later, we're like, hey, we should make sure that this gets in the Bible, right? And so like, I could see how Paul writing to that particular community would be using this as saying like, hey, we just need to like lie low for a little bit while we're getting our stuff together. And those folks need to like not pop off on, on the next meeting. Can we do that? Can we just try that please? The second way that I find grace in this text is that <laughs> there's kind of like an interesting read of Romans 13 being an act against imperialism. It's like, imagine if Christians came uh, to the United States and were like, wow, the Native Americans have set up a very sophisticated and obviously millennia old system of power. Maybe God has ordained that as well and we can learn something from it. Like, you know, maybe... The there's a cross-cultural savviness to this 
that uh, would be helpful for Paul as he's trying to not only set himself up in Rome, but again, continue uh, to, to talk about the Christian message, to talk about the good news to folks all the way out in Spain, right? The third way that I find grace, and this is really, <laughs> all of this has been leading up to this point of, of what we are going to be putting in our survival kit between now and 2020. And that is how we relate to the media. Uh, I think that underneath this Romans 13 scripture, Paul most foundationally is trying to say like, hey folks, we gotta survive in order for the movement to survive. Like, like the church is the body of Christ. And so if all of us die, then the body of Christ is not, the good news of Christ isn't going to be able to continue to spread around the world. So like, don't be beholden to death. Don't be fearful of death. And don't let the threat of death control you, as we saw uh, with Christian martyrs in the 300s. But nonetheless, try to live, <laughs> you know, like try to make it. And when I think about media, it's hard for me to not see kind of like continuous writing on the wall of how we're going to completely destroy ourselves as a society. What I mean by that is, um, so many of us get, get news from news sources and then are uh, also on social media, but also there are definitely days when I go to social media first and I get some news from social media. Huh, so the funny thing about that is that uh, the algorithm of social media rewards people feeling like the most base evolutionary feelings, most significantly like outrage and disgust. Social media posts that incite outrage are the posts that spread the most and the ones that spread the most get the most ad, generate the most ad views and therefore generate the most revenue. And so you can see how this kind of keeps going. And I am all about making sure that we know like what new, what outrageous news is going on in the world. I think that's very important for us to have kind of a eyes wide open approach to the world. However, I am aware that on my social media feed, there are bountiful news stories that are not written with any level of like journalistic integrity, fact checking, or any type of like verifiable truth. And they're presented as if they have journalistic integrity and facts and verifiable truth, right? And, and we know now, by the way, that there are like people from other countries, Russia, who are like intentionally putting divisive social media communications out into the social media world. And it's like, like this is how we are not gonna make it through 2020, especially in an election year, folks, is if we are continually taking in information that isn't just the news, which is already tough enough, but is the stuff that is intentionally trying to trigger us to respond with outrage. Do we see how this is not going to go well, right? And so um, I think that I'm, I'm taking this like Romans 13 insistence 
on surviving for the sake of the movement, and the insistence on taking on the empire, but not just reactively getting outraged at the next thing. And I think that it is time for us to do the Reliable Media Challenge. The Reliable Media Challenge. It was founded by, um, shoot, I don't remember his name, but he's like the most attractive human that exists. Do you all remember? Is that? Um, anyways, whoever it is, uh, curated this post about a reliable media challenge. So here are the rules of the reliable media challenge. The first is to take a look at the media bias chart that's on Ad, Ad Fontes. And there's a green rectangle on there that indicates the most reliable sources of news determined by a team of experts across the political spectrum. Pick three sources from inside the green rectangle. Three. These are your top three news sources from now until January. And so um, these are news sources that are shown to be the most reliable. And um, how do I say it? It's like the, the news sources that are outside of the green rectangle might still have reliable things to say or helpful things to say, but um, they're not, uh, there's also like a, a lot, a lot of opinion pieces and like spin or um, uh, uh, editorialization of the news. And so it's not that those are bad to read. And in fact, um, opinion pieces are some of the most powerful tools especially for marginalized people. Um, but uh, for the Reliable Media Challenge, we're not trying to, uh, look, we're trying to look at what happened before we're looking at the editorialization of what happened. Does that make sense? So uh, the first step is to pick your three. And then uh, before you visit social media every day, before you visit social media every day, just look at the websites for those top three. And you don't have to read everything, but just kind of see what's there. Uh, read what's interesting, compare what they say across those three. And then once you've done that and then you go on to social media, when you see like just this like smoldering headline that's like, come over here, I want you to get mad. You can check to see where that the media source that created that headline, where that media source is on the media bias chart. And then see if any of your top three are covering those same stories. If the source has low reliability or is skewed too far in one direction and your top three aren't covering it, then let's just like, just wish it its best and, and then throw it out a window, you know? Like, like we just don't need more outrage as much as the fight in you is like, yeah, I wanna get mad at something today. We don't need more false starts. We need to get mad at the things that are actually infuriating. I know in 2020, as someone who uh, spends a lot of time in organizing circles and tries my darndest to be part of social justice movements, that there are going to be a lot of things for us to be outraged about between now and November. And there are going to be a lot of things that the people who don't want us to notice those actually outrageous things going on, there's going to be a lot of distracting noise to try to steer us uh, uh, away from the things that need the most attention. Because at the end of the day,
whoever can command the attention of America is going to win the future. And I believe that God wants us to survive for the sake of the movement. I believe that God is calling us to a type of transformation where we can show up as Jesus Christ in the world. I believe that Jesus heard a lot of shenanigans and a lot of jokers trying to run their jokes. And Jesus <laughs> took issue with the power players that were making the most nefarious difference. And he called out the powers and principalities, not the distractions and the dramas. And so we are called to put in our survival kit this kind of like focused discipline trust that if we pay attention to the things that matter, as much as we want to join the throes of the fights of all the other things going on, that our, uh, our work as Christians will get more done when we stick to reliable sources. Because at the end of the day, I have to believe that social media is a place where we can live out our faith. Because I believe that we can live out our faith in every part of our lives, including our digital life. And so I think it is the responsibility of Christians for the sake of our survival, for the sake of the movement, for the sake of transforming the world, that we spread good news, that we make good news viral. And I don't just mean like optimistic news, I mean like news of liberation, news of how God is moving in the margins, news of how we are becoming whole again. I believe that our social media presence can be as much of a testament of faith as anything else in our life. For example, did Brian ask me to include the Reliable Media Challenge in my sermon. No. But when I read it, I was like, dang, this is some good news stuff. I could see why America would need this between now and November. And did I ask him two minutes ago whether or not I could include this in my sermon? Sure did. <laughs> and that's how it happens, folks. Good news spreads when we uh, witness to truth and we allow the good to overcome the evil in our society. And so through our social media presence and through our commitment to staying together as a movement, I invite us to spread good news. Amen.